My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. You know, the, the cynic could, um, could imagine a scenario where Russia is close to Iran and Iran is close to Hamas and um, everybody winks and smiles and this war breaks out just at the most inopportune time for Ukraine, which was kind of the piece, the theme of the piece we wrote uh, called Minority Report, where we talked about the chaos in Congress that I mentioned earlier. And so you don't have to be too paranoid to connect these dots. Um, and then again, uh, one front war with a nuclear superpower is bad. A uh, two front war with um, all of the um, sensitivities in the Middle East is, is worse. And then a three-front war with another nuclear power, i.e. China over Taiwan, would be, boy, I mean, not good. On this episode of What the Finance Podcast, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Doomberg uh, for the fourth time. So the first guest to come back four times. <laughs> so he's keeps putting up with me, but it's because we have amazing conversations. So thanks so much for coming back on the podcast today. Well, you know what they say, Anthony, fourth time's a charm. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Hopefully this one will be the good, <laughs> the good interview. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. So uh, my first question is actually about our last conversation, because then we were talking about how the US policy is really driving sort of our enemies together, um, or I guess Western enemies together. Um, so I was interested to hear your opinion about, I guess, current mm-hmm. policy and whether that's changed since our last conversation in April. Well, then. The most pronounced thing that has changed since our last conversation in April, of course, is the outbreak of literal war in the Middle East, which is, of course, a, uh, a disastrous situation by all measures, humanitarian, um, geopolitical, and economical, potentially, depending on how things evolve. And obviously, that is a fast-moving situation with uh, an enormous degree of emotion um, on both sides. And, um, and we saw uh, a real amazing sort of... Um, news cycle earlier this week where it was alleged originally that there was a bomb that was dropped on a hospital that hundreds of people were killed and of course the the news cycle has since um, perhaps turned to a different explanation as to to those events but regardless um both sides have become i think dangerously close to the abyss uh on on a war that could proliferate well beyond the gaza strip which is obviously a nightmare scenario and, and frankly on many people's you know, World War III catalysts, uh, game uh, game theory and and planning, uh, you know, for, for military strategies around the world, uh, uh, breaking out of hostilities in the Middle East could very quickly um, escalate uh, to, to, to very, very, very dangerous situation, even da- more dangerous than it is today, of course, which is a catastrophe for, for those directly involved. And so I do think um, that is the big unknown. That is the big impossible to model, very dangerous scenario that faces macro analysts today. Um, you can imagine, um, you know, uh, if Iran became directly involved, and then there were sort of countermeasures to that, and and then OPEC was forced to um, unify and reduce supply and exports to the rest of the world, that things could get ugly very, very quickly. Let's hope that it doesn't. Do, do you think that's, I guess, maybe the first stage, or or like the greatest risk to occur that we do see maybe this this a trade war between a lot of these global powers? Do, do, do you see that uh, I think the, the immediate risk is a hot war expands beyond Israel and the Gaza Strip, even just Hezbollah from the north, which, of course, Israel would interpret as, as a, a direct assault from Iran and might retaliate accordingly. And, of course, we have you know, Senator Lindsey Graham here in the U.S. openly calling for the U.S. to preemptively destroy 
Iranian petrochemical complexes. I, I think such talk is very dangerous. Uh, I think um, Biden um, Biden's recent trip to the Middle East hopefully was an effort to put a lid on the situation and and try to find a path to, if not peace, then at least a ceasefire that both sides could um, could could respect and honor. Um, remains to be seen whether that transpires. I frankly, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I, I think the uh, you know the the milk has been spilled here, and and um, you know this is, of course is a very complex geopolitical, um, uh, very difficult to solve issue that goes back to, you know, obviously the second world war and, and a lot of these wounds have never really healed. And, and so this is why, of course, it's always been on people's radars as a potential flashpoint for, for truly global confrontation. But you can imagine, um, if Lindsey Graham's, um, you know, desires were fulfilled, well, of course, Iran is a major supplier of oil to China. China uh, might look at its oil reserves and decide that if the U.S. is going to choke off one of its major suppliers, it it might have to move on Taiwan a little sooner than it may have been planning, and so on. You can imagine how the dominoes might fall uh, from this very very dangerous situation. And in fact, in between the time you and I are speaking and this is published, things may have changed materially. That's how dangerous the situation is. And so I, I think it is sort of a a singularity event where it's very difficult to predict what comes on the other side. Uh, but unfortunately, few of the outcomes um, are, are positive. Yeah, and it seems like the US, they sort of understand the risk that this is, you know, obviously there's already wars or proxy wars, you could say, on two fronts. The risk of sort of, I guess, China-Taiwan being, you know, a third front, you could you'd imagine that would stretch US military quite thin. But at the same time, as we're mentioning sort of the energy security and, and the impact that would have on the global economy would be astronomical. Wow. We put out a piece uh, last week called Minority Report, where we commented on the fact that, you know, this comes at a time where the U.S. Congress is in complete chaos. Even still now, this is the second chance that the Republicans have had to name a replacement speaker for Kevin McCarthy, and they've failed to do so. First, Steve Scalise, and now Jim Jordan seems to have failed. Um, and Biden looks to be proposing that the Congress would uh, pass one giant bill. The latest number we're hearing is $100 billion. That would include support for... Um, uh, Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan, and also border control uh, to appease some of the more conservative uh, holdouts in Congress. Well, remains to be seen whether that gets done. I think that's a huge milestone. In the piece Minority Report, we commented on how, I mean, any objective analysis of U.S. domestic politics would conclude that the support for Israel is far more bipartisan uh, and uniform than is the support for Ukraine at this point, because continuing to fund the war in Ukraine has become a bit of a uh, uh, a cause that the the, the right wing slash conservative members of of the Republican Party have have decided to take on ahead of the election year, and so it remains to be seen whether they will couple support for Israel to support of uh, Ukraine or vice versa, uh, as it may be. And if they separate the bills and they insist on only passing a clean bill of support for Israel, it's unclear what the president and his party would do. You know, we tried to write that piece from a a sort of um, politically neutral voice just to uh, objectively observe the chaos that is currently uh, occurring in, in Congress and, and try to game plan on how, uh, depending on which scenario plays out, what it would mean. So, for example, if um, support for Ukraine is stripped and only support for Israel passes um, a divided Congress, you could imagine Putin taking that as a sign of weakness. And, and historically, when Putin senses weakness, he tends to play his hand or, or even overplay his hand, uh, depending on your interpretation of the events. And when Putin feels emboldened, 
energy prices tend to go up. Um, and so there's all manner of second and third and fourth order consequences to the, the news flow. And of course, it must be said, it's incredibly difficult to get accurate news, as we mentioned about this bombing or alleged bombing of a hospital. Um, Twitter has sort of devolved into a, a it, it, I mean, it's just the, the signal to noise has has dropped dramatically. And, and this event, I think, has proven that it's become ever more difficult to determine objective reality from spin and propaganda uh, on that site. And there's no other site. There's really no other option. I mean, it still is a, a magical place. You know, we, we don't post on Twitter anymore, but we still lurk there. You still there is no substitute. But at the same time, it, it seems to me that it's breaking a little bit under the stress of of this current uh, series of unfortunate uh, uh, events. Yeah, definitely. I think when you mentioned those flashpoints as well as like a second, third, fourth tier, we saw, you know, Finland, Estonia, I think it was, it was a gas pipe and, um, or, or some type of, uh, an underwater infrastructure that was blown up and that sort of just gets thrown to the, to the back of the news. So it seems like there are people who are becoming, and it could be Putin, we, we're not sure, it probably was, that they're becoming a lot more bold in, in what they're actually doing. And that's, you know, it's Finland, I'm pretty sure they're NATO, aren't they? So they're, they're actually well, in Estonia. Yeah. Here's another scary scenario. So with this, um, the controversy around the alleged bombing of the hospital. And again, you know, we, we don't comment on these things in real time because it's impossible to know the truth. And it's, it's, it's very high likelihood that you can make a mistake, right? And, and you don't want to add to that. Um, but many people did, of course, in real time. And, and um, it's not really important what actually happened anymore. It's important what the sort of uh, both sides believe happened. And if the extremists uh, on the, in the sort of Islamic world believe that um, this was, you know, a war crime. There's a scenario where regimes in the Middle East who are perceived to not be doing enough um, uh, to support the Palestinians might get overthrown. Um, you know, like, th th then what happens, right? And so imagine, um, heaven forbid, um, you know, MBS suddenly faces an internal revolt. And what does that mean for Saudi Arabia's uh, production and exports of oil. It, it could be that momentum grows for OPEC and OPEC plus to take a stronger stance uh, against the U.S. and their support for Israel uh, in this regard. And it's, it is a very difficult needle for President Biden to thread. Uh, and um, and I wouldn't uh, wouldn't wish that job upon uh, upon anybody because it, it is really, really it's, it's an incredibly dangerous situation. And I, I don't think that we should underestimate it or or. I mean, it just needs to be confronted. This is a generationally dangerous moment in time. Yeah, I agree. So then if we look at, I guess, what we've been seeing in the energy markets, we did have push up to, or I guess if we focus on oil to start with, push up to close to $100 and then sort of a, a pullback. I guess from your opinion, there is obviously that risk of, let's say, you know, further escalations of conflict in the Middle East, um, for further supplier challenges. But where, I guess, what are your thoughts on where we could see it going in the coming months? So you've looked at European natural gas, which would be a flashpoint, especially in the aftermath of the uh, damage to the to the natural gas pipeline that you mentioned. And we wrote about that connects Finland to Estonia, which is a major artery in the, in the European energy uh, infrastructure. And by the way, you kind of have to look to find that event that's kind of been buried in the news. We were one of the few places I think that mentioned it. And um, I think, you know, the, the Dutch TTF is 60% higher than it was, um, you know, the, at the end of the summer, but it's still very muted compared to the energy crisis last year. I, oil, you know, I'm looking at WTI at $89 on my, my Bloomberg right now as we're talking. That seems 
relatively muted. So one interpretation is the market is seeing through the extremities in the headlines and assuming that um, order slash peace will be restored uh, through some semblance of a negotiated pathway. Um, another view is that the markets are radically underpricing the tail risk of the situation, which is probably the camp that we would fall in. Of course, not investment advice, but um, if somebody gave me a bunch of deep out of the money call options on oil, I wouldn't turn them down. Yeah, it makes sense. Do you think they're maybe underestimating as well the chance of a recession in, in the US? Because I feel like that's something that's it's just performed so well this year. It's sort of been thrown thrown to the side and uh, you know, people aren't worrying about it anymore. Do you, do you feel like that's a, another tower risk? Or? Well, I mean, I, I don't see, I think obviously the, the bond market is not signaling a recession. And um, and so I, I think the the recession camp has been um, proven to be incorrect. Uh, I think our friend, my our friend here, uh, Tony Greer, has been banging this drum for several months that the the risk of a recession was um, overpriced in the market, and that he viewed um, that the U.S. economy, with all the efforts on reshoring, and frankly, you know, the elevated interest payments are an indirect form of fiscal stimulus. We're running huge deficits. Um, you know, those interest payments are paid to. You know, the the, the uh, velocity of that money is not as rapid as uh, direct transfer payments to um, the lower end of the economic scale for things like buying food and so on. But they still find their way into the economy and, and give a bit of a boost in the short term at the expense of the long term solvency of the country, of course. But uh, I digress. So, yeah, I think um, I, I wouldn't think that the, the chance of a recession on a meaningful time frame uh, is nearly as important as the risk that. Um, full-blown war in, in the Middle East um, presents. It's not necessarily obvious to me that that would be negative for stocks unless, of course, oil really exploded to the point where the economy would then collapse, which is a possibility. I mean, again, I think if if we see regime change in a major oil-producing country in the Middle East, that triggers you know, uh, other populations to revolt. And again, this could be something as simple as the population perceives that the leaders of the country are being too soft on Israel in the aftermath of what they believe to be this this war crime at the hospital again this is you know what the truth is is no longer relevant uh, in times like this um and so again it just just one example of, of a scenario that isn't on many people's radars that that i think probably should be so if you'd have asked me two weeks ago if a hot war would break out between <laughs> israel and hamas and there would be shelling across the northern border and uh, and oil would still be below $90 WTI, I, I would have been a little surprised, to be honest with you. Yes, same with me. So uh, I guess if we look at what analysts are looking at when we're with oil supply, I'm assuming they're looking at the countries that have quite stable supplies. So would it have to be sort of Saudi Arabia, like a, a country like Saudi Arabia, which has always been quite stable uh, for that, as you said, to, to have a massive impact on, on markets, or could it be even Iran or or other other countries as well that maybe aren't as large producers. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, one million barrels a day is enough to swing the price of oil forty to fifty dollars, right? And and I would question your uh, base assumption that Saudi Arabia is a quote stable country. I'm old enough to remember when MBS had all the billionaires in the country hanging out at a certain hotel, um, uh, you know, effectively um, under house arrest until they. I'm not quite sure what the point of that uh, little episode was, but I'm sure you remember it as well. I mean. Um, the the security state in Saudi Arabia is necessarily paranoid. And uh, I do believe that um, perhaps not Saudi Arabia, I'm not making that call. I don't want people listening to, to 
to misquote what I'm saying. I'm saying the risk of such an event happening in a country in the Middle East, um, because the population is inflamed at what it perceives to be uh, happening in the Gaza Strip, is not zero. Um, Jordan, obviously not a major oil producer, but if a regime falls, the pressure on all the others would be amped up and the, the pressure to be seen as doing something to punish the West um, might continue to grow. And so, again, these are these aren't predictions. These are risks that um, that we're trying to get a handle on. Yeah, definitely. I saw since what we saw in 2011, where it just, I guess, permeated throughout yeah. Middle East, North Africa. Um, so if we look at, I guess, the US, they have been looking for uh, to try and not source oil, but maybe edge their bets in case there were this uh, increased conflict. So I know um, just recently, I'm not sure, in the past few days, they've sort of gone to Venezuela and that's saying, if you hold elections in the next few years, then we'll t- take the sanctions away. So do you see this as a potential, uh, I-, I guess, benefit for, for the oil markets or do you think it's still early on? Uh, it's early days. Um, I, you know, We wrote about this uh, eventuality in a piece called Molecular Tourism, where we explained to our subscribers, why it would be that the U.S. would be interested in Venezuela in particular, and this has to do with the the type of oil that the U.S. Uh, refineries uh, have been built to process. And these were built, you know, the last major refinery in the U.S. was built 40 years ago, and back then they were refining a heavier grade of crude than currently comes out of the Permian, for example. And of course, uh, imports from Canada and Venezuela and the heavy tar sands that both countries um, exploit to produce their oil. And so it would make molecular sense for um, the U.S. to um, to to reopen oil imports from Venezuela, which then um, you know allows for uh, more flexibility and and perhaps exporting more of the light sweet crude that's coming out of the Permian and so on. And so it makes molecular sense. Of course, it calls into question the decision to kill the Keystone Pipeline because this was meant to bring similar oil from Canada, which is a much friendly nation with whom we don't have to negotiate free and fair elections um, as part of some economic trade. But nonetheless, this is the situation we're in. And um, and I think escalating tensions with Iran only accelerate the need to do something with Venezuela because Iran produces enough oil that if it were to disappear from the market, it could be significantly uh, inflationary. And, and don't forget, all of this is happening within the context of a presidential election cycle that is just beginning. And, and so this shouldn't be ignored either. And And you know, and again, also it's happening just at the onset of winter in Europe. You know, the, the cynic could un, could imagine a scenario where Russia is close to Iran and Iran is close to Hamas and, and um, everybody winks and smiles. And this war breaks out just, just at the most inopportune time for Ukraine, which was kind of the piece, the theme of the piece we wrote uh, called Minority Report, where we talked about the chaos in Congress that I mentioned earlier. And so you don't have to be too paranoid to connect these dots. Um, and, and then again. Uh, one front war with a nuclear superpower is bad. Uh, a two front war with um, all of the um, sensitivities in the Middle East is, is worse. And then a three front war with another nuclear power, i.e. China over Taiwan, would be, boy, I mean, not good. Yeah, definitely not. So, yeah, if we go back to Europe and I guess uh, with the energy um, needs this winter, do you see that? being an issue or do you think if we look at what they did last year they obviously uh created lots of temporary facilities to import um liquefied natural gas so do, do you think they've sort of resolved that or is that still going to be a risk moving forward i mean absent a dangerously cold winter i think they'll be mostly fine i, I did read with some amusement a, a report in bloomberg about how germany had restarted 
another coal facility uh, because of a, a relatively short cold snap that hit the country um, here in October. Doesn't bode well necessarily for the doldrums when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow and and their grid really has to lean on coal. Um, so I, I do think they will, I mean, the base case is, and the market is sort of pricing in that they will get through this winter. If you look, coal prices are relatively normalized. Natural gas is a bit elevated over the summer, but nowhere near where it was at the peak of the last crisis. They've hollowed out their industry and 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 retreated back to coal. And so um, at what expense will such a, um, a victory come? Uh, obviously a very high one. Um, but we shall see. Uh, nobody, certainly nobody here, is hoping for a cold winter to to um, to prove to prove that the risks we've been highlighting uh, were real. We we hope that they get through yet another winter. And I do think this is probably the last winter of major risk. Um, there's still this fantasy in Germany that they're going to shut down these coal plants and that this is just temporary. I mean, that's not going to happen. These coal plants will be perpetually extended by however many years they need to in order to to keep the game going that they they won't need coal uh, on any reasonable time frame there is no scenario where germany can shut down those coal plants um they just won't that's a giant lie um the greens have peddled the lie in germany um one thing to watch in germany in the winter of course is the rise of the what the the establishment would call the far right uh, the afd party in particular seems to be surging in the polls and doing quite well in regional elections outside of its base in eastern germany we did watch with some interest the elections in Poland, which seemed to be a near miss for the European political establishment. Uh, so even though the anti-EU candidate um, won a plurality of the votes, it doesn't look like um, the uh, the incumbent prime minister has enough to form a majority in parliament. And uh, Donald Tusk, which has got to be one of the best names in politics, looks set to become the next um, prime minister in, in uh, the next leader of Poland. Um, and so we shall see. Um, um, but I, I do think... If you pushed me, absent proliferation of the war in the Middle East um, or Putin feeling extra emboldened, I think um, Europe should be able to get through yet another winter. And then the majority of the risk, you know, like these last two winters were probably, you know, 80 percent of the tail risk would have been abated. OK, makes sense. So, Dubo, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, my last question is, what is one message you'd like people to take away from our conversation? Uh, <laughs> That's a great question because again, I don't want to be pessimistic. Um, but the one message is that I would uh, I would think about hedging personally, um, both your personal lives, your, your emergency preparedness, your your financial exposures. I, I do feel that uh, even though the name is Doomberg, um, it looks pretty doomy out there. It's hard not to peruse the headlines and and not ponder starting with your own family. Um, what is my response if things sort of spiral out of control? Because we are at a very dangerous period and, and i would prepare accordingly yeah that's a great message so thanks so much for your time today i really appreciate it um you mentioned you're not on twitter anymore or you, you are but you're just sort of not posting which is sad but uh so would substack be the best place to find yeah what you guys do? we are exclusive on the on the substack ecosystem which means we publish at doomberg.substack.com and also they have notes which is a a a knockoff of twitter i guess for lack of a better phrase it's not quite twitter but it's quite good we post uh, on notes like we used to on Twitter, um, and you can find us there. Um, uh, you know, we are 100% subscriber supported as always. Um, Anthony, appreciate the time. Uh, wish we were meeting uh, with more positive things to discuss, but such is reality, and one must confront reality as it presents itself. So, um, really enjoy the conversation. I'm looking forward to to coming back for number five. Yeah, definitely. One time we'll get a positive conversation. We can say everything's going great. Uh, hopefully in the not too distant future. But yeah, thanks again for your time.
Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.